0: You're listening to the Grace Church Podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to bringing you biblical guidance to life's most important issues. Visit us on the web at visitgracechurch.com. We do baptisms about once a month here at Grace, hearing over 12 people getting baptized this week is just, I mean, it's fantastic. And I actually was uh, tearing up hearing the the family talk about, uh, you know, you hear, that's, that's why we do what we do. We do when people who have a sense of God and want to be closer to God, um, when they receive Christ as Savior and it starts to impact their kids and their, their extended family, it, guys, that is why we do what we do. And I was, I was thinking about this morning that uh, um, God has so many hopes for you. He created you to bring Him pleasure. He created you for his purposes. He designed every area of your life to bring him glory, but in different ways. You know, he, he brings, he keeps people single to bring him glory from time to time. It's something that God does because you're more free to live out your faith. You're like Paul, like Jesus, like some of the great saints in history. He brings people together in marriage for his purposes, So that you can see this love and sacrifice and service. And people ask, what makes your marriage different? What makes it better and better? He gives you kids for a reason. To make sure that the most important goal is that they walk with God. He gives you a job for a reason. He puts you in school for a reason. Not only so you learn or you use your gifts, but you're a living ambassador for Jesus Christ. A representative. And... Here's the deal. It's so easy for each one of us in the hustle and bustle of life to lose sight of what really matters and allow like a secondary goal, which is not bad, but make the secondary goal primary. Even sometimes it's almost a self-serving goal, a shadowy goal, shadow goal. That's the goal we really serve. We lose sight of what really matters. I guess I want to ask you to open your heart today. Open your spiritual ears and eyes and listen to the promptings of the Spirit. Perhaps God brought you here today to rebuild what God, God intended for your life. Maybe you were there once, you lost it, maybe it's only totally re- being rebuilt up for the first time. But if you listen to the Spirit of God, God's going to prompt you today. What if everybody in this room, everybody worshiping online, what would happen to our community if just we did that today? There's some things God wants to... Uh, speak to us about. Now, I got a, a story to open up here that relates to the text of Scripture. It's almost like a modern version of what Jesus is going to show us here in just a minute. Uh, but if you watch the news a couple years ago, the Atlanta public school system was really a, a shining light, a champion. Uh, they had for years faced a lot of the challenges that any urban core, great, great, systemic societal challenges to raise kids, educate them. They interviewed kindergarten teachers about a decade ago in the Atlanta public school system saying, how many kids do you think are going to graduate of your kindergarten class? And they said, we well, think 90% won't. Maybe 10% will graduate. It's just hopelessness. And so the Atlanta public school system went out, hired the rising rock star, Dr. Beverly Hall, who was out of Newark or New York, and she came down, she implemented sweeping changes. People were fired up. Test scores were rising. They're rising shockingly so. And, and, but everybody's pumped. She won two years ago, the superintendent of the year. This is a major award in education. At the same time, investigators were checking out what's going on. And about, it was just about a month ago, I think, the story broke that the school district as a whole was cheating. And these were inflated scores. What tipped them off was the inflated scores of one school right next to another school and the preponderance of, these were standardized tests, of erasures and filling in. And they have like 44 schools admitted it, 178 principals and teachers admitted cheating. Here's what they do. They get the standardized test. They pass them out, number two pencil. We all know those moments. And they take the test back. They erased the wrong answers. They filled in the right answers. And you ask them, how could... I think these educators, I think you would agree, probably the vast majority started off with the best of intentions. They were going into the most difficult educational fields that our country has to offer. And they want to do great things. I don't think for a second, like the vast majority of them would start off with these evil intentions. Most likely, they want to do great things because of their stated goal, the noble goal was to educate the kids that's what matters. But the problem is a shadow goal, a secondary goal, to get the test scores up became the real goal. And the shadow goal, get higher test scores, overshadowed the noble goal, why they were designed, educate kids. And they lost sight of their real purpose. And I bet there's a lot of reasons, probably different reasons, why each person was a part of that process. Now here's the deal. I think for each one of us, we can lose sight of our purpose in life. We can lose sight of why God has us married, why God has us single. We can lose sight of why we have a job, why we're in school. We can lose sight of why God created us, why we're in church. We can lose organizations. Businesses can lose sight of it. Churches can lose sight of why they exist. You name it. It's easy to adopt a secondary goal which is not bad sometimes or sometimes it is bad self-serving that's our topic today for God to rebuild everything he intends he's often got to walk into our world point out the things that are obstructing his plan and say we need to get this thing out of here you have changed your divine purpose turn into something else it's not my goal And so I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to to John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter 2. And I think our ushers have Bibles, pens, and worship guides. They'd love to give you one if you're a guest here. Maybe you're visiting for the first time. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to loan one or give you a Bible. Inside the worship guide, wave them down. In the worship guide are message notes and pens. You can get pens also. And if you're really nice, they'll go buy you a latte and bring it back to the church. And so it depends on if you get the nice ushers, right? So they'll do that for you. Uh, But it's going to be a fantastic morning. I believe God wants to speak to every single one of us. We're in a series called Rebuild. Two weeks ago, we're actually using right now this, this rebuilding of the Jewish temple, particularly the second temple. The first Jewish temple was built by King Solomon in the 900s B.C., 400 years later. The Babylonian Empire destroyed that temple as a symbol of God's judgment. They had no temple from about 500 B.C. and on. And then after that, about 70 years later, they started rebuilding the temple. And we realize not only is the physical temple in the Old Testament a picture of God's presence and pleasure and worship, we realize that that temple is a picture. What they did to rebuild the temple physically are the very same steps God wants to rebuild your life Spiritually. And so a couple weeks ago, we actually looked at the Jewish temple called the Second Temple being rebuilt by Zerubbabel. Great name if you have pregnant, looking for a kid's name? Zerubbabel, Zeru, Z, the Z man, what are you gonna call him? But where did he start with the temple? He started by rebuilding the altar. We pointed out a couple of weeks ago that if you're gonna see God rebuild something great in your life, what God intended, You're going to go back to our New Testament altar, the cross of Jesus Christ, and rebuild what the cross is all about in your life, his sacrifice. That's where you begin rebuilding in any marriage, any life, any heart at the cross. And last week we talked about the process. Nehemiah began to continue rebuilding the second temple. He rebuilt the walls for defense. There's a whole 10-step process. And Pastor Philip pointed out, guys, when God rebuilds, it didn't happen overnight. Rome wasn't built in a day. Your life won't be rebuilt in a day, but there's a process you go through. We talked about that last week. Well, this week we're going to fast forward to the day Jesus was. In fact, in John chapter 2, Jesus actually was worshiping the temple. Let's go to the next slide here. This is a model in Jerusalem of that same second temple after the renovations. They call this Herod's temple. And this is the actual complex that Jesus himself worshiped in. Now, Uh, Kind of set some context here. That that second temple that Zerubbabel made was kind of small. And actually, when Jesus' day, it was like 500 years old. It was small, run down, was not servicing them. And there was a very politically savvy king named King Herod. And he's a politician. And he began one of the biggest building programs of all of the first century. He offered to, by his own power and money, rebuild the Jewish temple for them. They said, well, you're trying to just stop the temple. And he said, no, I'll fund it myself. And he actually was able to rebuild over the course of decades and allowing them to continue their worship. What he did was incredible. It was an engineering feat. He leveled a mountain. He built up the sides of a mountain, making a big square platform, expanding it to 36 acres, which could now hold 200,000 worshipers. He brought in huge foundational stones that you can see today. Part of Herod's temple still there, they weigh over hundred tons. They had to invent technology the Romans did not yet have to move those stones into place. It was amazing. They brought in fill dirt. He brought in special white marble imported from out of town, which was different than the local kind of yellowish stone, and so that the temple itself shone like a light. And when Jesus was born, this was the temple he worshipped in, this was the city he went to for years. He'd go attend Passover. And the thing about the second temple, Herod's temple, is it was in the middle of another rebuilding program. But they were rebuilding secondary things. The outside, the way it looked, the foundation. But on the inside, they had a shadow goal, a secondary goal, which was not of the Lord, which was subverting every good thing God wanted. And we're going to see a story. When Jesus walked in, he does this twice. When he cleans the temple out, he cleans house. And he walked into the temple at the very beginning of his ministry. The first public act he ever does is to clean house in there. And he does this again at the end of his public ministry, which was the final straw before he died. I guess my question today is this. As we examine ourselves, that temple is a picture of you. The temple, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is the temple. The temple. Of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. I guess the great image today is that Jesus wants to clean house in some cases. In some cases, he wants to point out that we are using our life, our temple, for good goals, noble goals or negative goals. They're just not His goals. We've changed why we exist. Rebuilding your purpose. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll dive into this moment when Jesus cleans the house. Let me pray. Lord, I just pray that you would open up our eyes. We we come to you. We are desperate uh, to have your will be done. We are desperate that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You are number one. It is the most important commandment, the greatest commandment. I pray that we would open up our ears and eyes spiritually. We would listen to the promptings of your spirit. We'd see this example. We pray you would speak to us this morning. In certain cases, you want us to get certain things out that are maybe are neutral or good or bad because they're obstructing what is best for our life. God, help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John chapter 2, let's set some context here. It's the Passover, John 2, verse 13. Jesus is like 29 or 30 years old in that range at this point. John chapter 2, verse 13 says this. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Let me set some context here. 200,000 worshipers could be there. But at the time of the three major holidays, including Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell to 2.5 or 3 million people. That's a lot of people. They were, they were sleeping and staying everywhere. Passover was a celebration in the spring where the Jews came together to offer, first of all, a celebration of Israel being delivered from Egypt. Thank you that you delivered us from our slavery, Lord. It was also a time every man was supposed to bring a tax of one half shekel. And they would bring that. Unfortunately, the temple could not be a place of idolatry. Everybody's currency had a picture of the emperor or a god. So you had to exchange your money to a local temple currency, only valid right there. And then you could pay your tax, and you could even bring your animals from a distance. They, people would actually have an animal. They wanted to go back. Go ahead. Isn't that great? That's a great sheep. I'm just telling you. You are never going to hear a better sheep impersonation. If you had a sheep you're going to give to the Lord and you had to travel a long distance, it says we're in Deuteronomy 14, you could sell that sheep, pocket the money, go and buy a sheep locally, and offer it, Deuteronomy 14, because it's harder to bring a sheep eh, than it is to bring in just the money and then offer that to the Lord. So there's a lot of things going on. People, historical records say, would arrive They'd buy souvenirs, they'd take tours, like anything we would do if we visited Jerusalem, they would do in those days as well. This was Black Friday of the Jewish year. This is when you get all the souvenirs and money and hotels filled. They got to get a picture, what Jesus walked in to see. It's supposed to be a sacred time. And the last thing I'll point out is that little area. See the open area? Imagine yourself walking into this Jewish temple from the left-hand side of the south, walking up three flights of stairs into this big area called the Court of the Gentiles. Anybody, any non-Jewish people per- could go there. This was intended to be the temple, a place where the world came to the temple to be in the presence of God. That's what it's supposed to be. But they changed its purpose. Like the Atlanta public school system changed their purpose. The Jewish temple changed its purpose. Here's what Jesus found. It says in verse, in verse 14. What did he find? It says that he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now, these guys were ripping people off. That's what Jesus found. First of all, they'd slip this entire exchange, money exchange, which was outside the temple at one point. They gave them a space in the temple. They were clogging up the area that was supposed to be for the nations. And then the exchange was ripping people off. Every person who turned into half shekel. They'd only give them, records say, down to 50% of their value. Oh, I'm sorry. And so immediately, the temple was doubling their money every time there was a tax. And then the priests were in on it. Historical records say that the priest would reject every animal from outside. Ah, this has got a flea. I don't like the the eye. One eye is a lot. You can't. But you can buy at a very reasonable price one of our pre-approved sheep right over here. You see, outside the temple, the sheep were worth fifteen cents. Inside the temple, they were charging you fifteen dollars, one hundred times the value. This was, guys a money-making machine. It was no longer amending the hearts in ministry. Guys, they changed the purpose. It was about the money, not about ministry. And so how does Jesus respond to this moment? Taking a divine temple, which remember this, the temple's a picture of you. It's a picture of you and I changing the purpose for our life for something God never intended. How does Jesus respond? And by the way, this is the most this is the first miracle, or first public act. He had just historically gotten his 12 apostles. You want to follow me? Sure, we'd love to. You're a rabbi. He just done a private miracle. The water to wine. Only the disciples knew. The disciples, John 2 says, knew the water to wine was a miracle of Jesus. Those guys out there at the wedding feast didn't know. So now he goes, hey, I'm going to do my first public act. And they're like, yes, way to go. We're going to go public with this ministry now. And here's what he does. He walks over, it says in verse, 15, verse, uh, verse 14, verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords. Now, in those days, the Jewish temple outlawed weapons, as you would sometimes in major gatherings, any major gathering, So they would check all their swords and clubs and glocks at the door, and so they would go ahead, and he would go inside, and he found a weapon of opportunity. He saw all those leashes of animals. So he went over and said, Hey, here's Jesus. Can I borrow like like four leashes? I promise I'll give them back. And these work for you? Yeah, I think these will be, these will be just fine. And he turns around and begins a stampede of the cows and sheep and the sheep herders. It says he took the whip. When he made a whip, of course, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He went back to the changers' money. He poured out the changers' money, overturned the tables, and said to those who sold the doves, still in their cages. He says, there's two statements I want to look at today. First of all, take these things away. One of the things I want to look at today is when he, he points his finger at something in the temple and says, that thing does not belong in your temple. Get those things out of here. And then he says, the other thing I want to look at is this. Do not, do not change my purpose. Do not make my father's house, the temple, his divine plan, a house of merchandise. It's the Greek word for emporium. That merchandise is, You've turned it into a business emporium, not a place of worship where the nations meet the Lord. His disciples at that point First of all, I'm sure they're freaking out. What did we get ourselves into? This is the guy that we're following. He did it at the start. He's announcing his public ministry. He's not healing. He's not teaching. He's whipping. That's what he's doing. And so they're like, you're going to get us killed. You killed. What are you doing? But his disciples did remember something. A messianic psalm, Psalm 69, uh, which says this. They remembered this psalm at that moment where his disciples remembered, verse 17, that it was written, zeal, the passion for your house has eaten me up. They saw Jesus consumed with passion for God's original plan for his temple. And don't don't mistake this. God has an original plan for you, and he is zealous. He is passionate. He is consumed with the best plan he has for your life. He's consumed with it. So the, now, how did the Jews respond? Interesting, everything Jesus did was recoverable. He stampeded the animals. They could bring them back. He turned over the money tables. They could pick it up. He didn't let loose the doves. He said, carry those out. So he actually, it was a controlled cleansing. Of the, he wasn't out of control going eight. But I'm telling you, those guys said, now it says in verse, uh, in verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us? since you do these things. Like, shouldn't the Messiah do some sign? If you're going to claim to be the Messiah and cleanse the temple, Malachi chapter three style, what sign are you going to show us? And he says, well, there's only one sign I'm giving you. This sign's enough. It's the resurrection. That is the sign he gives the world. Look what he says. But he used the word temple. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. If you kill this temple, it's talking about his body. I'm going to resurrect within three days. That's the one sign you get. Then he goes on. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. They were confused. They were looking at the complex and the 46-year plan, which ironically would go another 30-plus years, and they would finish the temple only three or four years before it was wiped out a second time by the emperor Titus because they'd lost their way. He was speaking, verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Your body is a temple. Your life is a temple. Well, guys, this, this is a, a rich passage. And, um, you know, I could say uh, being a church planter is not the type of event that I used to launch Grace Church years ago. A grand old whipping in another church. You know, you don't do that. That's, it's just not the event you would think that the Lord would use. That's where you go public picking up a whip and driving people out. I guess there's two thoughts, there's just two statements Jesus make that just ring in my ears that I think God would say to every single one of us at certain points. I want to go through the second statement first. They're both actually in verse 16. One of the statements I want to look at is when he said, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Jesus said, guys, He walked into the temple, and instead of seeing all the nations in that space, connecting with the Jewish people, connecting with the God of Israel, finding out who God is, he finds a business. He finds inequity. He finds people ripping people off. It was clogging up the space for the world. He says, you have changed the purpose of the temple. At least my first thought, if you're taking notes, here's my first thought. It is so So easy for us to lose sight of why something exists, why God designed it, you might say. It is so, I mean, I mentioned, I I started earlier talking about God's purpose for marriage is to show the world his love and the relationship with Christ and the church. That's why you're married if you're married. There's no other reason that's more important than that. But it, guys, it's easy to lose sight of, of the sacrificial love, the picture of Christ, in the church. Because, man, they're annoying today, right? I mean, it's just easy to learn to you just want to. That's it. I've had it. But you find your divine purpose in marriage when it's most difficult. That is when you sacrificially love people when it's when they're hardest to deal with. When you have a kid and you you start, God gave you a child so they walk with God. But there's all sorts of shadow goals in our culture. I mean, I get it. You want your kids to have good grades. You want your kids in extra activities, exposed to things, getting ready for college and those type of things or whatever God has for them. And all these other good goals and the time we invest can become like clutter in our lives so our kids miss out on the most important thing, our kids walking with God. Knowing God. Like all these secondary goals become shadow goals. Keeping out. God's goal. I mean, you're at work to be a missionary. You're in school to be a missionary. Yes, to learn. Yes, to use your gifts. You are there to take the temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was in one place. God called the world to come to the temple to meet God. He reverses it in the New Testament. He makes you the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he sends you, the temple, out into the world. Don't make them come to you. You go out to them, and you're at your job. You're in your clubs. You're in the neighborhood groups, in the PTO. You're in those things, not only to do the function, but in a larger sense, to be a missionary. How many times we forget we have a job to be a missionary. We go to school to be a missionary. We're in our clubs, on our teams to be a missionary. We forget. And I wonder if Jesus like, walked into your temple, so to speak, your life, he walked up the three-level stair, three staircase, grand staircase and entered upon this space that's supposed to be space in your life for people who don't know God, your court of the Gentiles, people who don't know God. What would he find there? Sometimes they're not bad things. They're good things. It's just clutter, invasion of your calendar and attention and time and money, but it is keeping out your impact upon this world which is why you exist. It is so easy. There's a great story of God's passion. Isaiah chapter one. If you're reading with us through the Bible, the Own It 365, reading through the Bible plan. We just hit the, the prophets this week. To the end of the year, we're gonna hit the prophets. Isaiah, there's two readings every day, but one of them's the 17 prophets, five major, 12 minor. We just read Isaiah one. Look at what God says about the nation of Israel. He says in verse 11, they've lost their purpose. Verse 11, To what purpose? Circle the word purpose. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. I do not delight in the blood of bulls. When you come to appear before me, incense is an abomination to me. I cannot put up with iniquity, sin, and the sacred meeting combined together. Your feasts my soul hates They are a trouble to me. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And as you read through the 17 prophets, five major, 12 minor, this comes over and over. God had a purpose for the Jewish temple and the Jewish people to live out their faith. And the problem was they lost God, but kept going through the machinery of religion. And when God sees people going through the motions of religion, Without having his heart, it is an offense to Almighty God. God is not into religious game players. In fact, he says, I hate those feasts you think bring me pleasure. They stop bringing me pleasure. And I just hate the event. Return to me. Return to me. And guys, it is so easy for us. I said all those goals that God has for your life. It's so easy to forget why God made each area of your life. It leads to the other thing. I think, remember that Jesus made two statements. He says, you've turned my father's house, or you could say you turned your life into something that wasn't God intended for. It's not your primary goal. A house of merchandise. Using it for something that's not my primary goal. The other thing I want to look at is the other thing he said. Uh, It's after he got done whipping uh, those animals out of there, but he said this, this. Verse 16, take these things away. He walks into the court of the Gentiles, he walks in and he takes one look at all that stuff and he says, you know what's holding these people back? Those things. And he gets get, but nothing's wrong with doves. Doves were good. They were used for worship. Sometimes there are good things in our life that aren't the best things. And those good things are now holding us back. And that's the blank, if you want to put in your notes. To rebuild in our life, God often has to remove what's holding you back. He has to clear out the clutter. He has to take it away. In fact, quite often, we want to rebuild. What we want to do is to, how do we rebuild? And we want to start thinking about making progress. Sometimes, quite often, God has to take something away for progress. And there's two types of things the Bible says God takes away so you can make progress. He calls one in Hebrews twelve one weights. He, t- he says lay aside every weight. Circle the word weight there. Hebrews twelve one, and the word sin. Circle the word sin. There's weights and sins, two types of things that hold us back. And I wonder, and I, I don't wonder, I know. There's clutter in every single person's life. Given enough time, forgetting the purpose, there's things that hold us back. One, one time there's weights. Sometimes those things in our life, if Jesus walks into your life, he's got all these hopes, and he takes one look at those doves, or their are weights. What are weights? Weights aren't sinful. They're not bad. In fact, quite often, good activities, noble goals can become Weights. In your life. Neutral things can become weights. They're the things that Jesus comes up, and I wonder if he walks into your life, walks in your temple, would he walk right over to something good in your life? It's actually good, but it's actually clogging up your calendar, it's clogging up your finances, it's clogging up your time, it's clogging up your attention. And those are good, you say, Well, then you cling to it because they're good, but this is so good. And he says, It's good, but it's not best. I'm leading you to lay aside that weight. It's holding you back. Get those things out of here. Back when I was at Stanford University, I, I became a Christian between my freshman, sophomore year. I was in the band the freshman year. Uh, my whole friend base was from the band. Came back, became a Christian. The band wasn't bad for me. I wasn't, it wasn't sinful for me to be there, but I'm telling you, I really got a sense that it's not what God wanted for my life. And one of the hardest decisions I made, I'm a brand new Christian, brand new Christian, was going to my friends and telling them, I feel like God doesn't want me to be in the band anymore. And they said, well, Why? You think we're wrong? You think we're condemning us? I said, No, no, it's just for me. God was trying to clear out something that wasn't, wasn't bad for me, but He had better. He had better. And the price tag was walking away from a whole set of friendless. I still was their friends. We just wouldn't have the contact we had before. You know, guys, I'm telling you, it was hard. And I graduated from the school of Stanford. I could have stayed another year in Silicon Valley. I I was in the master's program one more year. That was my degree, my progression. Felt like God didn't want me to do that. It was a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. Just wasn't the best. And I believe there's people in this room that you have weights. They're neutral. They're no big deal. They're good. But the spirit of God is prompting you. Take those things out of here clogging up the space. In some cases, they are sins. Let's be honest. They may be sinful. There are things in our lives that we become accustomed to. What once was an offense to us and we cannot believe it. Now, because we know the truth that Jesus forgives all of our sin, past, present, future, that sin's pre-forgiven. And you're smart. We're all lawyers at heart. And so, you know, yes, if I sin, this is already forgiven. He's forgiven me. I'm going to heaven. Cool. And so you become comfortable with areas of your life that go directly against God's heart. If you see that in somebody else, maybe more offensive, but if you see it in your own temple, you're like, eh, I'll deal with that later. And what if there's a sin in your life? The Bible says it's wrong, flat out wrong. And we all sin every day. I sin every day, you do too. I'm talking about the type of sin that begins cluttering and clogging your life and take away the time and attention and purpose for your life. To rebuild God's purpose, he's often got to say, get those things out of here. So what would that be? What would be for you, there are times that's a continual process of pruning, of cutting away bad, neutral, and good stuff. But I'm telling you, in our culture, if we're not living with every one of those goals in our career, in our school, in our marriage, in our family, in our personal life, in our ministry and church, in outreach to this world, we have lost sight of the real purpose. of God has so much better for you, so much better for you, so much, it's night and day, it's a wake-up call. Let's pray for just a moment, just a moment. Lord, we come to you and we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would, and those who are believers, you're living in our temple, we believe, your Holy Spirit of God, but would you walk over to those areas of our life that if they are a weight upon us, if they're a sin upon us, would you just point them out and prompt us by your Spirit, take these things away. Lord, we don't want to be held back by these things anymore. Lord, if we have lost sight of the real reason we exist in any area, point that out by your spirit. God's pointed that out to you this morning. Spoke to you about a misaligned purpose or something to lay aside. Say, Tim, pray for me. Raise your hand. Say, pray for me. I sense the prompting of the spirit this morning. Pray for me. Lift up your hand nice and high. And you can put it back up. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Pray for me. I sense that. Thank you, guys. Anybody else? Pray for me. I sense it. I sense it. Yeah. Lord, I pray for those who did raise their hand that you would do miracles in their life. God, they have recognized the prompting of your spirit. This is the most sacred time of all in our hearts. When you prompt us and we receive that and we recognize it, Lord, I pray for them. You have already given them the victory over those areas. You've already defeated those by the cross. The power of your cross, the power of your resurrection is enough already. They've already got the victory over those areas. Lord, may in some cases they take and get rid of those weights and those sins. This week, in other cases, restore your plan, your purpose for their life they lost their way nobody's looking around perhaps you're here uh, and you know you've been checking out church and and trying to be good and exploring christianity and i just want to let you know christianity is not a self-improvement plan you can't be better like I, when i first became a, like started going to church i thought well i'm gonna really try harder now it's like the Christianity is the opposite of trying harder when you try harder it doesn't help In fact, admitting you're a sinner and you cannot try hard enough is critical to receiving the gift of Jesus Christ. To receive Christ as Savior, you admit there's nothing you can do to help God out. It was finished at the cross. To receive Jesus Christ, you place your faith in his death and resurrection, the one sign he's given to this world. And to receive Jesus Christ, you surrender control of your heart and life to him. And maybe you're here and you have not yet done that. And you sense right now the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life. Or maybe there's uncertainty. You may have, you may not have, you're not certain, but you certainly would like to know for sure today. I'm gonna pray for you. Uh, My prayer cannot cannot save you. My prayer cannot have you receive Christ. It's your prayer that you cry out to Jesus. I'm gonna give you a model prayer. You can pray with me if you would like to know for sure that you've received Christ as your Savior, you've given your life to Jesus, I encourage you, pray with me right now. You can pray something like this. Just pray, dear Jesus, I admit I cannot be good enough on my own. I can't improve myself enough or try harder. You died because I couldn't do it myself. And right now, I turn from my own goodness, my own efforts. I turn away from that self-improvement plan, and I turn to the cross. And I look to you as my Savior. Would you take what you did at the cross, the payment for my sin, the victory over death and the grave, and would you just apply that to me? I accept Jesus right now as my Savior. I accept Jesus as my Lord. I surrender control of my life at this moment. You are my Lord, my leader. And I want to know for sure, put a stake in the ground today, that I'm yours. And I've received you. Lord, I I do this right now in Jesus' name. Amen.